Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We begin our introduction to Malachi. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Malachi, the last minor prophet of the Old Testament. Like all other books, we give a full introduction, break it down so you get a good idea. It's like a river, I've told you much, you wide, uh, and then you cut deep, and this way, as you track through our Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, you have a good handle on the Bible, every book, so that you know exactly what that verse, that chapter is talking about in context. It will never change. The application, there can be various, but the interpretation, there's only one. It meant one thing to the people written in that day. It didn't mean two or three things. It meant one thing. And so um, it's objective truth, not subjective truth. Um, and so Malachi, he's the last minor prophet, the 12th and the final. As we've studied the major prophets, we've seen how vast they are. The minor prophets are a little smaller. But yet um, Malachi here is the third post-captivity prophet. We've uh, finished um, Haggai and Zechariah, and they are the three post-captivity. Malachi is uh, the final cry, as we saw this morning, to Israel to repent in view of their sinful lifestyle and the Lord's coming. And that's always a very basic message. It has never changed um, from the day of Pentecost, if you want to look at the New Testament. Uh, the message of the gospel has always been repent for the kingdom of God's is at hand. The kingdom of God's in the midst of you. Repent because the Lord is coming. And um, sometimes people get tired of that message of repentance. And they So churches start entertaining people, start um, telling jokes, stories, uh, try to build programs and plans so this way people can be attracted so they can hold a lot of people. If the word of God does not keep you, I don't want you. It must be God's word that keeps you. It must be God's word that attracts you to come to church. It must be God's direction on your life that you're hungers for God, the things of God, to grow, to mature, to serve God, to be telling others about Christ. And the gateway of that is repenting from sin. The people had become indifferent to God, compromising the things of God, speaking arrogantly and rebelliously towards God. They're very sarcastic and irreverent words uh, will be recorded in this book very clearly. And um, they were dishonoring God. Man never changes. He is sinful and self-centered and God never changes either. He's holy and attempting to save lost man. Those are consistent things. And so again, Malachi will close the Old Testament canon. And then, um, as we'll see, 400 years of silence. And Matthew will open up the New Testament canon um, Malachi closes with repentance. Uh, Matthew opens up with repentance. It's like there was never a pause. <laughs> it just hooks up exactly the same. Let's begin with the prophet Malachi. Um, the name Malachi is most significant. Uh, as we pointed out this morning, it means that my messenger, there in chapter 1, verse 1, and he is the primary messenger believed to be a Levite by some, but it, it, we're not certain. And some of those who believe he's a Levite point to chapter 2, verse 7, but he's addressing there the priest. So we cannot be certain. Um, John the Baptist is a secondary messenger that he speaks about when you get to chapter 3, verse 1. And there he deals with, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the Messiah of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So he's the secondary messenger that he speaks about. And Jesus is the third um, in his first coming in chapter 3 there, um, verse 1. So you have John the Baptist, you have Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, Malachi's name is said to be a um, contraction 
of Malachiah, messenger of Yahweh. The prophet Haggai, if you remember, was uh, designated the messenger of Yahweh in Haggai 1.13. Malachi's name is found nowhere else, and therefore some have taken his name to be a title, but uh, it's usually taken as a name. Um, names were often associated with uh, significance of their birth or character. The Targum of Jonathan credits the book of Ezra, uh, the scribe, to Malachi, but the majority credit to Malachi. Again, there's a lot of traditions you will read when you read critical commentaries and you read other people and they bring opinions. But if you cannot find internal evidence within the book or substantial documentation that that would give light to the book, we do not teach from the absence of Scripture. It's nice to point out, well, these guys, they believe this, the church father said this, and some even believe that Malachi is really uh, not even the one that an angel wrote it, some of the early Jewish fathers said. Well, you know, we know that's not true, but but these are some of the things and thoughts that have come through the time about the book. Now, Jerome followed this tradition that, um, that of Ezra. Um, but again, uh, it's not what the text says. Malachi's name uh, is not related to any family line, as we've seen um, often. Um, it's completely absent. So again, there is nothing that we know about him um, from this book. And uh, any other book, again, nobody would be speaking about Malachi prior to this because he's the last one in line. So um, they wouldn't mention him. But he um, is mentioned in the New Testament. He's quoted in the Gospels, uh, yet not by name, but the quotes are very clear that it's from the book of Malachi. But we also find quotes like that of the major prophets and other minor prophets where it says this is in fulfillment of, and the prophet's not declared, but the quote is very clearly from a certain prophet. Um, The office of Malachi was... Again, the last of the 12 of the minor prophets, um, messenger of the Lord and um, the last again of of the post-captivity. And these three prophets are very important because they give us a a very um, window into uh, the heart of the people as they came out of captivity. Remember, they went in because they didn't keep the word of God. They, uh, they, they were judged by God and they were put there for 70 years. The land had not given its rest for seven, uh, 70 Sabbaths. So he put them there for 490 years, as we'll see the, the prophecy of Daniel. And so now they've come back and, and they were very, they had come back to the land. Remember Haggai and Zechariah, but they hadn't come back to God. And all of a sudden God sends Haggai and Zechariah to just, uh, um, encourage them to repent from their sin. They repent. They tell them to go grab lumber or timber from the mountains and to start building the temple. They did. They were being encouraged. The, the temple is built. Um, they're working okay. But now Malachi is many years down, as we'll see. And, and, and things haven't, haven't happened as fast as they wanted to or as prosperous as they wanted to. And so what happens, people become discouraged, disillusioned, and even start living contrary to God. Now, you know yourself, you've known people who have come to the Lord, and they're excited. Man, God has just saved them and done this and that. And then five years, ten years go by, and then all of a sudden things aren't happening. And they are so set upon certain things happening, or the Lord coming back, and then they get disillusioned. They say, well, you know, I used to be a Christian, or, you know, I whatever, and... So we see it in our own generation, in the life of people. Um, every generation is the same. It's no different. Um, Malachi was God's mouthpiece to reveal the mind and the will of God to the people of God. God always seems to use individuals to communicate to other individuals. Um, God makes himself known. As he wills, when he wills, to who he wills, as often as he wills. And he uses them to communicate his revelation. Now, the only way we can know certain about, about things about God, like his nature, his character, um, prophetic events in the future, 
is if he reveals them. Other than that, we would not know them. So when we come to the Bible, we come to it, understand that it's God's absolute truth about whatever subject or topic he's talking about or he reveals. So I never read the Bible and say, I wonder if this is true. Now, I read commentaries, I read other things, and I, and I have to verify that by the Word of God. So too many people um, examine the Bible by other people's writings. That's reverse. You, you study the, the real manuscript, and then you judge the commentaries and the comments of others and the criticism of others by the Scriptures. Very, very important. Uh, Malachi prefaces his message as the burden of the word of the Lord in verse 1 there. And again, the burden is the idea of oracle of judgment, something heavy and to be proclaimed and lifted up. Uh, these are the words of the Lord Yahweh, not Malachi's. Um, it is um, his revelation. The man is the mere instrument, even as you will uh, be used of God to minister the gospel and at times and maybe a family member or something and and, 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 and the things that will come out of you at that time, you will be shocked as you're sharing them. But you don't want to make believe like you're shocked, so you're just kind of cool and calm. But afterwards, you go, I can't believe it. Because you've been in church, you've been studying, you've been praying, you've been praying the Lord. And then he brings everything that he's taught you in, he brings it out by the Spirit of God. But if you don't put anything in, there's nothing that can come out. So it's important that we study to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth all the time. Now, the phrase, says the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, are repeated nine times in the first chapter as the source of his message and his words. There in chapter 1. Malachi is God's final and closing voice, as we said, to Israel before the 400 years of prophetic silence. His message is repentance, repentance in the present of their sin, in view of their sin. And this is chapter 1 and 2. And then in view of the Lord's coming, you have chapter 3 and 4. Matthew's message, again, is repentance in view of their sin at the Lord's arrival. The first coming. The New Testament is the fulfillment of Malachi's short term wise through John the Baptist that he points out in chapter 3 verse 1 and then Matthew quotes it in his gospel. The long term fulfillment is through Elijah before the second coming of Jesus and that comes in chapter 4 verse 5. So um, some very key prophecies regarding in fact when um, when the Jews have the Passover, they always leave a chair empty and a setting on the table um, wherever they're celebrating. And, they, and, and that's for Elijah in case he comes. Because the Bible says he's going to come literally. All right. Now, John the Baptist came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Luke chapter 1 tells us very clearly. Elijah will literally come in Person, the book of Revelation tells us, according to Malachi, he will be one of the two witnesses that will be giving the Antichrist a bad time, and he and the second one, whether it be Enoch or whoever, will be killed, and God will raise them up after three and a half days. Now, Malachi was to proclaim judgment on Israel, the defiled priesthood, in chapter 1, verse 6, down to 2, 9. The disobedient people in chapter 2, verse 10 through 4, 6. He, by tradition, has been considered to be um, one along with, as we said, Haggai and Zechariah. Very key prophets because it tells us and it shows us whether these people really learned their lesson after captivity. And when we examine what happens in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, and these three prophets, we realize that there was a repentance, but they still went back to their sin. Okay? These three are important because by tradition, um, 
it's considered that these three are the ones who founded the great synagogue to preserve God's word uh, from the time of Cyrus. Because remember, when they were in captivity, there was no more temple. Okay, Solomon's temple had been destroyed. And that's where the study of the synagogue, okay, began. And that's where in the New Testament you have synagogues. In, in the synagogue, there was never sacrifice. You studied the word. In the temple, there were sacrifices. And the word was never taught to women, only to men. Okay? It's just real simple. So, this is the prophet Malachi. Now, let's look at the book of Malachi a little bit. The book gives us um, a dialogue between God and the people, as well as the prophet and the people. So it has a little different twist from the normal prophetic book that has a lot of revelation and stuff like that, though it has some of that, but it's in a form of dialogue. Um, Yahweh speaks to the people in the first person in chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 2, verse 9. And then the prophet speaks to the people in the third person in chapter 2, verse 10 to 17. And then Yahweh again speaks to the people in the first person in chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, 6. So there's kind of like a, a, a handing off of the baton back and forth. The book has been broken down and analyzed in seven discourses. There are different ways, but seven discourses is a, uh, one of the ways. Um, in chapter 1 here, verse 2 and 5 Declaring God's love for Israel in contrast to Edom. God clearly declared to them that he loved Jacob. He loved Israel. And he pledged and declared his love. In chapter 1 verse 5, down to 2, 9, declaring the priests uh, their negligence and indifference to the covenant in 2.10 to 16, declaring the people's mixed marriages and divorces unequally yoked. If there is one thing that constantly plagues the people of God, it's those sweet, wiggly little things. Remember the Midianites? They came in by the council of Balaam. Go show these guys how you worship your God with these Sexual rights. And one of the Israelites grabbed a, one of those Midianite women and went right into the tent, right before Joshua and, and, and Moses there. And, and they thrust them through with a javelin. And that's always been the downfall all the time. These mixed marriages, unequally yoked. In chapter 2, 17, down to chapter 3, verse 6, declaring the coming judgment... Of his people. And then in 3. Verse 7 to 12. Declaring the robbery of God's tithes. Where God says you robbed me. And he challenges them to. See if he doesn't open up the windows of heaven. In chapter 3 verse 13. Down to chapter 4 verse 3. Declaring the difference between the complaining doubter. And the faithful, righteous. And that's always a contrast. Those who are going to be faithful, those who are not. It's not because God has not enabled you to be faithful or myself. It's what I choose to do with what God has given me. This is a simple rule. Listen, learn it. The problem is never with God. The problem is with man. Okay, I'm not worried about God's faithfulness. <laughs> I'm worried about mine. All right. I wish I were a robot. I'm not. I wish when I came to the Lord, God could have put it on cruise control. But he did not. Every day I have to get up. Every day I have to make decisions. Every day I have tests. Every day I have temptations. Every day I can walk in the spirit or the flesh. There's no C. It's A, spirit, B, flesh. 
There's not a third option. I get to choose. Chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, declaring to remember the law of Moses, his servant, and the promise of Elijah. So you have these discourses. They're interesting. The book of Malachi was to proclaim the certainty of God's judgment of man's sin. The first coming was to judge sin on the cross, dying in our place. Again, Malachi 3.1 speaks about the forerunner of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. Um, again, Elijah chapter 1, uh, 17, and, or Matthew 11 and 17, and Luke chapter 1, 16 through 17, the power of the spirit of Elijah, the first coming. And then his second coming was to judge the ungodly. Again, Malachi gives us the second coming, chapter 3, verse 2 through 5, and chapter 4, 1 through 6. So, as you can see, as we've tracked all the major as well as the minor prophets, that both the first and the second coming were always declared. Uh, Israel had everything. That's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, If you would have known this your day, the things that were prepared for you, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And weeping, he proclaimed judgment over Israel and declared that they would be encircled about by the armies of Rome, Titus, and the city would be taken. People would eat their children, cannibalism. There'd be starvation, pestilence. The city would be leveled, the temple. The people would be dispersed. He did that weeping. There was no joy in it at all. The fault was not on God's side. The fault was on man's side. Completely. They had become disillusioned and disheartened because the kingdom had not come as of yet. And difficult times had come upon their life. And they became bitter. Doubtful, indifferent to God. And therefore they began to live after all manner of sin. And that's how it begins. Remember that uh, Satan came to Eve and says, Has God said? He, he wants to create doubt in your heart and in mine. To doubt the promises, the word of God. And if he can get that little wedge there of doubt, then we become the arbitrators of truth. And we start deciding on what really is of God and what is not of God. And then we get ourselves in trouble. Remember, it had been 139 years to this point since the return from the captivity under Cyrus in 536 B.C. If this is 397 as we believe... It's 139 years. That's a long time. But that's for every generation that turns to the Lord and repents from their sin. They have to live their life from day to day, from week to week, month to month, growing, developing, and maturing in Christ Jesus, being the light and the salt of the world, and not being discouraged, and always be looking for the Lord's coming, and knowing that He can come at a time that you think not. Always. Absolutely always. Let me give you some key verses and phrases. The key words, the word but, appears 11 times marking the nature of sharp contrast in this book. 11 times. I'm not going to rattle off all the verses. You'll be here forever. <laughs> the word covenant appears five times. Two of the five, my covenant. The word cursed or curse appears six times. There's also key phrases. The day. You guys are familiar with Zechariah. The day, referring to his second coming. Eschatology or eschatological. Study of end things. You have in 3.2, 3.3, 3.4, 3.5, 3.6, 3.7, 3.8, 3.9, 3.10, 3.11, 3.12, 3.13, 3.14, 3.15, 3.16, 3.17, 3.18, 3.19, 3.20, 3
24 times, implying God is the commander and captain of the armies of heaven. In other words, when he is for you, no one can be against you. And whenever he uses that title, he's ready to fight. <laughs> and he's never lost a battle. The phrase, says the Lord, appears four times. My name appears eight times. Once, his name. Malachi 1, 6, 11, 14, 2, 2, 5, then 4, 2. The day of the Lord implies by the context again, the end things as catology, that's nature. And uh, you find that in Malachi 1, 11, 3, 1 through 6. 16 through 18 and 4, 1 through 6. Just jot these key verses down. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 17. 3, 1. Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Those are the key verses. Now, the writing style is prose. It is said to be clear, forceful, and direct. As you examine the text, it's exactly what comes through. It is styled after the lecture-like method of question and answer called the dialogistic method or simply dialogue. Fourteen in total that reveal the irreverent and sarcastic attitude of God's people towards God. We will move through them one at a time as we go verse by verse at night, and then we'll do in-depth studies on Sunday morning. Let me give you a simple division of Malachi. You have the affirmation of God's love, and put in parentheses, their privilege. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Then you have the violation of God's love, and put in parentheses, their pollution. You have this in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 3, verse 15. And third, you have the revelation of God's love. And in parentheses, he put their promise. Malachi 3.16 to 4.6. So you see the progression, the affirmation of God's love, their privilege, 1, 1 through 5. The violation of God's love, their pollution, 1, 6 to 3.15. And the revelation of God's love, their, the promise, Malachi 3.16 to 4.6. Simple division. So this was the prophet Malachi. Let me give you a little bit on the times of Malachi so you put it in context that we've already touched some things. The most likely here, Malachi prophesied at the end of Nehemiah. Some say either at the end or shortly after that. Uh, some even say sometimes that maybe it was during the absence of Malachi uh, as he went back, uh, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, when he went back to Jerusalem. But there's no evidence within the book of Nehemiah, as we said this morning. Um, there are many similarities between Malachi, the book, and the book of Nehemiah. Let me give you some of them. Um, regarding the temple, um, Malachi speaks about it in chapter 1, verse 6 to 2, 9. Uh, the book of Nehemiah, you have chapter 13, 1 through 3. Regarding the people's tithes, Malachi deals with it in chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. Nehemiah deals with it in chapter 13, verse 10 through 13. Regarding the mixed marriages and divorces of being unequally yoked, 
Malachi deals with it in chapter 2, verse 10, down to 16. Nehemiah deals with it in chapter 2, verse 10 through 16. Regarding the term governor, a Persian word, Malachi uses it in 1.8. Nehemiah uses it in 5.14, 15, and 18. Haggai uses it also in 1.4 and 21. So you have the approximate period of time in which these things are in common and the same situations that were going on within this period. Okay? So there is a connection, but the time, again, makes more reasonable logic that since we don't have no internal evidence, most likely Malachi um, prophesied um, between 420 and 397 after Nehemiah. Now the return, I'm sorry, the spiritual and the moral failure of the people in the absence of Nehemiah um, and his return from Jerusalem uh, was very similar then to Malachi, as we see the connection, the very same things. Now listen, it's because the same people are involved. Are you ready? Sinners. Okay? Every generation, every nation, every culture, I don't care whether you're black, white, pink, or blue, or polka dotted, you've got sin nature. And the very same problems and very same failures are going to come up throughout the world every generation. No different. Always the same. Now, the return to Jerusalem was um, decreed by Cyrus, remember, in 536 B.C. You also find it in Jeremiah 25, 12, and 29, 10. Zerubbabel returned little less than 50,000, if you remember. And Haggai and Zechariah uh, came 16 years later to um, rebuke and encourage the building due to the fact that the Jews had become, again, complacent, self-centered with their own prosperity. That's about 520. And always notice that's always a thing. There's three things that you have to be careful as a Christian or a leader. Pride, women, and money. And if you're a woman, it's a man, okay? <laughs> Those three things are always a problem. Another added thing is laziness. There's a lot of lazy pastors. That's why they don't teach the Word of God. You're not going to be able to teach the Word of God just by reading the book one time and then, okay, Lord, give me the wisdom, and I just come up and, you know, just... God just drops it down on me. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to roll up your sleeves. Okay? There's a lot of lazy Christians. They don't like to study. The temple had been finished and dedicated on March of 516 B.C., you find this in Ezra 6.15, just four and a half years after Haggai's first call to action in the first chapter of Haggai, verse 6 through 11. The second return was led by Ezra about 80 years after Zerubbabel, around 457 B.C. Twelve to thirteen years later, Nehemiah came by the command of Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. So you can see the progression of what's going on. As I pointed out this morning, the prophecy of Daniel was key to the return. The 70 weeks of Daniel that is found in Daniel 9, 24, down to 27. 24 to 25 gives you the first 69 weeks. The last one is in verse 27. It is broken down uh, into three segments. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. That adds to 70. It's in a multiple of sevens. Seven weeks multiplied by seven is 49. The 49 years from Nehemiah 
brings us to the date of uh, backwards, because you're moving backwards, is 445 B.C., um, if we go from 396 to 397, because it always straddles because of the Jewish calendar, that means that would be the close of the canon of the Old Testament. After Malachi, no known prophet spoke for 400 years. Okay? It's not until Matthew opens up. They're called the intertestamental period. I've done a whole study on that. You can get it online or on the bookstore and gives you all the history with the Maccabees and all that. Um, Daniel prophesied that the Old Testament again then would close. It had been about 139 years since the Rubabel's return and 123 years since Haggai and Zechariah called them back to building the temple. The people of God had become corrupted by sin. From the priest to the common person, becoming ungrateful to God, indifferent, callous, sarcastic, cynical, irreverent, blasphemous. As you read this book, it's just four chapters. Read it over and over. You know, we have a, an incredible amount of technology today. I remember when I, uh, when I first got saved, all we had were cassettes. Okay? You say, what, you, what, what's a cassette? <laughs> okay? Um, and, and when I worked at, I used to work at this company, Johnson Pump. They used to make pumps for Saudi Arabia, oil, water, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I would work for nine hours standing there, and I would put that little player in my lunchbox with a hole, and I would put these cheap little earphones, and I went through Pastor Chuck's library from Genesis to Revelation, straight through, okay? And that's all we had then, but it was like gold. Chuck, used, Chuck first, in his first pass, he went ten chapters Every Sunday night, of course, not verse by verse, it's an overview, but he covered 10 chapters. Because the level of the Bible was so low, but he began to teach the Word of God. And I just, just heard it and just moved through it. And God prepared me. That was kind of like my biblical college to an extent. Now, Today, we have audio, we have, I mean, you've got the reading of the Bible, you've got little zip drives you can just put right in your car, you, you can just hear the reading of the Bible, the book, put it on there just with reading, or with commentary, with Pastor Chuck, whatever it is, or with the one we have done, and you can just go over and over and over again. So you read and you hear that book going through you all the time. It's a great way. You drive, you're stuck in the car. Don't get all uptight. Put the Bible, reading. No commentary. Just hear a book. In an hour, you can hear that book two, three times before you get home. You'll get it in here and here. Very important. So we have great availability today through technology. We need to make use of that. So they became um, doubters to the divine justice of God, indifferent, less concerned with their service towards God. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's just one step at a time. You know, it's like, it's, it's like people who are attracted to each other and then they date and then they get, oh, they're just excited and then, you know, they move into the boyfriend-girlfriend, then the engagement and they can't wait and they're going to get married and then, then you know, the honeymoon and then this and that and then, and, 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 and then, and, and then, and... And what happened then? That's a carryover to God. Now... If you're on fire for God and you're cultivating that relationship with God, you're going to do that with your relationship with people. All right? It's a carryover. All right? 
Too much of the church is affected by our culture. It's a carryover value because we cast people off. We get into one marriage, we divorce, we remarry, everything else. So therefore, we do the same when we go to churches. We just cast things off. We do it with homes. We move real fast. We're just superficial people. We're living under cultural norms and mores rather than the absolute morals and ethics given to us by the word of God. Commitment, steadfastness, sacrifice, service, virtue, character, honor. Those are all dirty words in our society, ladies and gentlemen. This uh, was a time of Malachi. Let me um, finish up by just giving you a very brief not a detailed outline of the book so you see it flow. Again, the affirmation of God's love as I gave you before the privilege from verse 1 through 5. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, you have the proclamation, the opening introduction and the proclamation of God's love for Israel, verse 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, you have the proof. God responded that he hated Esau and had not blessed him in verse 3. God declared that in spite of Esau's attempts to rebound, God was against him in verse 4. He gives you a proof of it. In verse 5 of chapter 1, their eyes would see if they look back as well as in the future. Then beginning verse 6, you have the violation of God's love, their pollution. From verse 6 all the way to chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 9. Addressing the defiled priest. God is the speaker there. God charged Israel with lack of honor and reverence to him in verse 6. The defiled priests are indicated here. God charges the priests. With despising God's name, accuses them of denying of such sins by their own words. In what way have we despised your name? There, verse 6 through 8. God, through the prophets, speaks to them in mocking irony in verse 9 through 11. God reveals how the priests profane his name and curses them in 12 through 14. God charges the priest with refusal to hear him in chapter 2, 1 through 9. Wow. Notice he begins first with the ones who have the greater accountability responsibility, the greatest privilege, the leaders, the Levi. They're the go-betweens between God and man. Then by the disobedient people in chapter 2, verse 10 to chapter 3, verse 15. The disobedient people are indicated as the prophet speaks to the people in the third person here in chapter 2, 10 to 17. The people had committed treachery and unfaithfulness against God in verse 10 to 12 of chapter 2. The people were divorcing, as we said earlier, their wives in chapter 2, 13 through 15. You see, but you don't do that until you first divorce God. Okay? Once you get rid of God, then you have no more conviction and conscience, right? Now you do what you want. In verse 16 and 17, the people were saying, God delighted in them. Doing all these things. Oh, yeah, yeah, God. God thinks we're the greatest thing since ice cream. Verse 17 is a pivotal verse which ends chapter 2, but also begins chapter 3, showing that God is not one with sin, and he is a God of justice who will come to judge sin. As I said this morning, they were saying, well, you know, if, if God's displeased with us, why, why hasn't he gotten me? Be patient. Be patient. Chapter 3, 1 through 7, the people would be sent a messenger. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. 
verse 2 and 3, the people would not endure his coming. He came to judge sin, first on his person. Verse 4 and 5, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem would come again and be accepted. In verse 6 to 7, the Lord God declared his immutability. He does not change. He is a God of holiness, love, and reconciliation. I change not. He's always the same. When God forgives you of your sin and mine, he doesn't become unholy. But he uses a means by which he made the payment through that he may be able to forgive you if you trust the payment he made. The payment was of his son. Even in the Old Testament, it was in faith, prophetically. In shadows and types, the animals. They were pointing to Christ. So whoever offered the lamb was believing in the promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15, who would die for the sins of the world. So God promised to make a way that a real payment was going to be made for sin and death. And if you believe that it was going to be through His Son, the Messiah, then He honors your, your trust in Him as biblical faith because it's trust in His revelation of what He's going to do. So when you repent from your heart and He forgives you, He's not just closing his eyes or winking at your sin or saying, oh, it's okay, you're a cool guy, forget it. He's honoring his word that he honors above his name by the method by which he has made for your provision and mine to be forgiven. He doesn't become unholy. In fact, he, he, he substantiates and affirms his holiness by crucifying, pouring out his wrath on his holy son who was sinless, who took my place and he paid my price, my death. So therefore he could forgive me if I repent from my heart. God never changes. Wow. Verse 8 through 12, the people were robbing God. 13 through 15, the peoples were, were slandering God. Then you have the third and final division there in 3.16 to 4.6, the revelation of God's love, their promise. 16 through 18, the reward of the remnant. The faithful remnant in verse 16 in 17, God in that day will make the remnant his special treasure and spare them as a son. In 18, they will be in that day, have righteous discernment for evil and good, one who serves God and one who does not. And then in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, you have the return of Christ. The chapter break is unfortunate for it contains the same theme. God will destroy and judge the wicked. There is no break in the Hebrew Bible. Chapter 4 is part of chapter 3. Therefore, chapter 3 contains 24 verses. Also in the Hebrew Bible, verse 5 is repeated after verse 6. So as not to end in a negative note. <laughs> Interesting. The day will be for judgment and none will stand. Verse 1 of chapter 4. The day. It's repeated in 3.2, The day will be rest, healing, and prosperity for those who fear God. Verse 2 of chapter 4. And the day will see the triumph of the righteous over the wicked. Verse 3 of chapter 4. The Lord of hosts is the one speaking through the book. 
the captain of the armies of heaven. Then finally you have in verse 4 through 6 of chapter 4, the redeem, the redeeming prophet. In verse 4, Israel was to remember the law of Moses, God's servant, which contains God's revelation to them. In verse 5, Israel was promised the sign of Elijah's coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Jesus said that John, again, his cousin, the Baptist, was Elijah in the power and the spirit, the short-term fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment will be by Elijah himself in the great tribulation, one of the two witnesses. In verse 6, Israel will see the purpose of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to their fathers, lest he come and strike the earth with a curse. Verse 6. Here you see God, the heart of God. He's trying to turn sinful man who's headed for judgment and eternal destruction if he doesn't turn. Wow. This was the message of Malachi. So, four little chapters. Interesting book. Read it over and over and over again as we move through it. And we'll do the in-depth studies on Sunday morning. And we'll go verse by verse on Sunday night. And we'll be done with it. And then we'll jump over to the New Testament. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for your goodness. And Lord, thank you for your word that is so incredibly rich, Lord, as we spend time and we move through it. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to direct us and guide us in our lives. We pray that we would abide in you and trust and depend upon you, Lord. We thank you for the people you bring constantly. We thank you for just your grace over our life. We thank you for just your love, your mercies, Lord, that are new every morning. We thank you for the protection that you've allotted us, Lord, through these 37 years. Your provisions, everything. We just thank you for our wives, our husbands, our children, Lord. Our grandchildren, how you've allowed us to be just um, an asset to them. An example to them, Lord. We lift them to you that they would walk with you. And so, Lord, we do thank you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight... If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Or maybe you're over the internet watching. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God loves you. He died for you. He rose from the dead. He paid the price of your sins. That offense was against the Father. The payment was made to the Father. And Jesus now is the only name, the only way, the only meteor by which God offers salvation to mankind. If this is your desire, if you see yourself as a sinner, it's the grace of God, it's the miracle of God. But don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Tomorrow is promised to no one, no one at all. And so if you desire to be born again, I'm going to say a prayer of repentance, which will be your prayer to Him. And if you believe what we've shared with you, then God will honor your faith because it's based on God's word. And he will save you right now. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.